Amen. Please be seated if you'll make your way to Isaiah. Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. God despises hypocrisy. We witness this reality throughout the book of Isaiah. We witness this reality as well in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ who we are studying How did Jesus of Nazareth relate to confirmed sinners? Well, we know. We've studied in recent weeks. We're going to look in Isaiah today, but we'll get back to the life of Christ in weeks to come. And we have seen in weeks past that he ate with sinners. He ate with Zacchaeus. He spoke gently and winsomely to the adulterous Samaritan woman. He gently restored the prostitute. He graciously coaxed the rich young ruler to give away his wealth and to join his band of disciples. He invited little children in their humility, sat them on his knee and blessed them. Jesus characteristically preached good news to those who were poor in spirit, no matter how sinful they had been. But make no mistake, Jesus did not relate with such gentle grace to hypocrites. We can turn to Matthew chapter 23 as example. Burning in the heart of Jesus was the divine condemnation God spoke long ago to the hypocrite Israelites. Those Israelites who engage religiously in the ritual pursuit of God, but whose devotional regimen did not change their hearts. We find that spirit here in Isaiah 29 in verse 13, where the Lord says, verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. We are reminded in God's dealings with Israel that what people of devotion do on the outside can easily become separated from who they actually are on the inside. And this is a vital consideration as we conclude our thoughts today in the little side trail that we've taken on fasting. I've argued the last few weeks that fasting is a legitimate spiritual discipline which can serve to draw us closer to God. But if you'll turn to Isaiah 58, we find here that fasting can become nothing more than an elaborate act of self-worship and thus accomplish nothing in our walk with God. And we could put with fasting many other of our religious disciplines. We're reminded by the word of the Lord through Isaiah that God is interested in something deeper than the empty stomachs of devoted people. In this prophetic word, God addresses Israel through the mouth of Isaiah, and in this address, He first of all exposes hypocritical fasting and its results. Verses 1 Through the middle of verse 4, I would like to have had a conversation with the person that wrote the verses through this section. They're all off, and so you'll have to bear with me through that. I think they're divided very poorly here. Remember, this division came many years after the Bible was written. 
but through 4a. So verses 1 through 4a, we see hypocritical fasting and its results. First of all, God condemns the hypocrisy of Israel's fasting in verse 1. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and, seek eager, and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed God summons Isaiah here, of course, in verse 1 to raise his voice like a trumpet that's not a metal trumpet, but one of the shofar, the uh, ram's horn. It was used in Israel to announce holy days, to assemble armies, to summon meetings. In other words, don't leave this message in the dark shadows, but bring it out into the open. Announce it loudly. Proclaim to Israel that God is angry. Why? Verse 2, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager. If you write in your Bible, which is good to do, that seem eager is the Hebrew word delight. They delight to know my ways. The translators are helping us here by saying in context, in fact, they do not delight to know God's ways, but they seem to delight in knowing God's ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. The problem is not external. On the outside, Israel is passionate about her relationship with God. But what are the indicators of this passion? They seek God, delight to know Him. They want to come near Him. They long to experience His ways and to honor His commands. That's the outside. But there is something that's not right. The Israelites are spiritually frustrated in their relationship with God, and they let God know about it. In verse 3, did you notice that? Why have we fasted? That's not God speaking. That's them, of course, speaking. Why have we fasted? And you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Fasted and humbled there are basically the same idea. They humbled themselves before God by fasting. By setting aside food... They sought to stand in God's presence weak and needy and for Him to see their expectancy of His answer. There was just one problem. They were willing to set aside food to seek God so that God will take note of their devotion. But they say, did you see the phrase there? You have not seen it. God, you've not noticed We have sought you with fasting, but you are not answering. What's up with this? Well, some would jump in here and say, now hold on. You've got it all wrong, Israel. It's wrong to fast so that God would see you. That's wrong motivation. What would Jesus say? Keep your finger here and let's turn back to Matthew 6. Would that be Christ's counsel? It's wrong to fast that God would see you. Matthew chapter 6, in verse 16. 
Matthew 6 and verse 16. When you fast, notice the assumption there, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. What is that? People have seen that they're fasting. That's the end of the reward. Verse 17, but when you fast, pour oil on your head and wash your face. That's part of grooming. In other words, put makeup on. If you're a woman, I guess, in our setting, comb your hair and take a shower and look normal. So that, verse 18, it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. Now notice this. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus isn't blushing here about saying that through fasting we do seek God's face and we seek for Him to see us in our humiliation before Him. There's nothing wrong with that at all. The Israelites were right about much here. Fasting is a means of self-humiliation, a legitimate means of securing the eye and ear of God in a special way. Tremendous passage from a book by Elizabeth Elliot, let me share it with you here, which says that fasting is, and I quote, a way of proving that I am serious. I like to eat, she says, and fasting is not a good way of getting one's mind off food, but it is a deliberate way of putting one's mind on one thing, God. Because you're reminded every minute of the other thing, food. The fact that you have made up your mind not to eat keeps before you the reason you're not eating. God, in His mercy and fatherly love, takes note of this flicker of movement toward Him. That's the phrase that caught my attention in this context. God, in His mercy and fatherly love, takes note of this flicker of movement toward Him. Now, the idea in Elizabeth Elliot's mind, and in every biblical scholar's mind, is not that God's up there too busy with his nose buried in his books and he cannot see us unless we really do something unusual. That is not the case. He is near to us. However, there is a sense in which we devote ourselves to God. There's a sense in which he takes special note. And Jesus said that, did he not? Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Yeah, that's right, says Israel. That's exactly what we're doing, God. By fasting, we're afflicting ourselves. We're humbling ourselves before you. We want you to see us, but you will not see us. What's wrong, God? What more can we do? Well, God hears this complaint, and He responds at the middle of verse 3. Here's His assessment. God exposes now the results of Israel's fasting. Verse 3, middle part 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striving and in striking each other with wicked fists. That is where the verse should end. 3b through 4a. Here's what happens on the day of your fasting, says God as he exposes them. Yes, Israel, you do fast, and I see that. But what I see is that on the very day that you set aside food to seek me, you exploit your workers. 
You get in arguments. You hit people in a rage. I see you. But do you really think I'm going to be impressed with your fasting when that is how you live? On the day of your fasting, here's the verdict, the middle of verse 3, end of verse 3. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. That's the same Hebrew word that's translated delight in verse 2. They were saying by their external devotion, we delight to seek God. What is God saying to them when it really boils down to it by the way that you're living? You delight to please no one but yourself. On the very day you're saying outwardly, I delight in God, your actions prove that you delight in your own ways. Do you think, Israel, that I care about empty stomachs? God now condemns the expectation of Israel's fasting. Verse 4, middle of verse 4, 4b. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed? And for lying on sackcloth and ashes, do you think for a moment that all I care about is an empty stomach and a head bowed over like a reed and seeing you sitting in itching sackcloth on a bed of ashes? You think that's what impresses me, says God. We may not notice at first glance, but verse 5 is really dripping with grace. It may seem and is, in fact, a pronouncement of judgment in one sense, but in another sense, verse 5 is merciful because it is corrective. It's a corrective question. It reminds me of God going after Adam and Eve and saying, where are you? That's grace. This is grace here. Do you think this is what pleases me? Says God, which indicates that he is about to counsel and teach Israel. This is what pleases me. So we look at hypocritical fasting and its results. External devotion that results in nothing when it comes to ethical behavior. We look secondly in this section, in this chapter, at beginning at verse 6, at authentic fasting and its results. We have the description of authentic fasting, first of all, beginning at verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? So this is your fasting. I condemn it. Here's the kind of fasting that I choose, verse 6, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Metaphors of relief. When a chain shackles are taken off, are loose from the wrists of a prisoner, there's a sense of relief and freedom when the yoke is taken off of the oxen, there's a sense of relief. When those cords are untied that bind the yoke to the plow, the ox senses relief and freedom. This is the kind of fast that impresses me. The kind of fast, says God, where you relieve the pressure from people. Where you set them free. Where you treat them with mercy There are people out there, 
says God, who are suffering. They're suffering injustice. They're suffering oppression in this culture. In light of verses 3 and 4, probably suffering at the hand of these very Israelites. My kind of fasting, says Yahweh, is the kind of fasting that results in justice, equity, mercy, compassion, love, and kindness. Those who genuinely draw near to me leave off their power plays and their grasping ways and actively pursue love and justice. Is it not this, verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the food, the poor wanderer, with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you truly seek God in spiritual devotion, you will develop new capacities to see other people where they are. This is the tremendous problem with selfishness. We see ourselves very clearly where we are. But if we are truly devoted to God, we gain the capacity to see other people where they are. Those who draw near to God give. Those who draw near to God love, and they help, and they nurture, and generally, and generally speaking, mind other people's business in the very best sense of the word. Now, there is, we must note here, a sizable gap between Isaiah's culture and our own. Isaiah did not address an affluent materialistic culture in which a central government assumed the chief role of social provider. Isaiah is addressing primarily people here of means, and it's indicated by the fact that they're oppressing their laborers. And he's addressing them in a culture where the central government does not take up that role as much as it does within ours. We live, of course, in an affluent culture. For many, where jealousy, materialism, laziness, entitlement, extravagance thrive in this world. And it can, it's not always honestly easy to know where to give to the poor and how to do so without sometimes rewarding sloth and greed. But those challenges aside, we need to take to heart what God is saying. There are people who are poor, there are people who suffer injustice, and there are people in our families and connections whom we need to help. God delights in fasting and singing and praying and church attendance and Bible reading and Bible memorization that results not in a head full of facts, but in self-giving love. Is God saying here that literal fasting is not a non-issue? Certainly not. We've looked at Luke chapter 5. We could look at Acts chapter 13. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is there's a kind of fasting that results in the right thing. And there's a kind of fasting that is nothing but self-worship. What is the right thing? It is compassion. It is kindness. It is love. It is care for others. It's ethical living. That's its description of authentic fasting. That's how it ends. What are the results? Does God see? Does He care if we draw near to Him? Does He pay any attention to our fasting? Remember, Israel complained that her fasting resulted in no spiritual benefit. Is God a stingy God? 
God says this essentially to Israel here. You wonder why I don't answer your fasts, Israel. I'll answer. I will answer when you give up fasting to please yourselves and begin living a life of devotion to me. Then I will answer. If you will pursue my kind of fasting, a fasting that results in holy living. Now hold on to your seats here, folks. This is, this is great poetry. These are amazing results, beginning at verse 8. Then, you do that, I'll show up. You do that, I'll listen. Then, your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then, your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You see the Israelites marching there, their righteousness, the vanguard, the glory of God, the rear guard, carrying them along. Verse 9, then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, what? Here I am. I will answer, says the Lord, with words of overflowing, overflowing with divine encouragement. God tells Israel, I will be there. I will answer when you seek me. Verse 9b, where a verse should be divided again, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, those are angry words and domineering phrases, malicious talk, Speech which accuses and tears others down. If you do away with that, verse 10, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Just saying again what he said earlier in different words, then. We notice another then. Then, here's the result. Your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Spend yourselves. If you furnish for the hungry yourself is the Hebrew word. You satisfy the needs of the oppressed by giving them yourself. And in fact, that may in many respects be the greater giving. Sometimes we give, and I have opportunities to do that all the time. I don't take them largely, but many times I'm given opportunities to give to people. And by giving to those people, we do nothing but hurt them. But can we give ourselves to people. You see, it's very easy to write a check and to send somebody on the way and to never give them any help. Do we see people in need who we truly help? Or in other areas where that is not the weakness of a certain individual who run, run into difficulties, do we meet those needs by giving not just financially, but giving away ourselves, our time and our energies and our interest to people? You, you furnish for the hungry yourself. That means food where food is appropriate and money where money is appropriate and clothing where clothing is appropriate, but it means above all else, you give them yourself. You pour your life out and make yourself available to them. You satisfy the needs of the oppressed. This is probably a parallel thought with verse 9. The hungry are hungry not because they're lazy or freeloaders, but because they're suffering injustice at the hands of greedy people who are oppressing them. And that's the people to whom Isaiah is talking. 
So true fasting is not merely refusing the satisfaction of food, it is humbling ourselves to satisfy the needs of others. Once again then, true fasting produces righteous living. And if that is the form of your devotion to me, says the Lord, notice the middle of verse 10, then, here's another then, your light will rise in the darkness, your night will become like the noonday, and more thens were found with the word will here. The Lord will, or we could say then, the Lord will guide you always, then he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Your night, verse 10, or it could be translated your gloom, it was often used figuratively of calamity. And we notice in verse 12 the repairing of ruins. Let's put this all in context here. What is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is writing while the light of the kingdom of Judah is flickering. There is the strong winds of Babylon and Assyria. Some years earlier, Assyria had conquered northern, the northern kingdom and left numerous cities in ruins, deporting most of the northern uh, occupants of the northern kingdom to other places. In 701, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, had led an invasion against Judah, against the kingdom, Sennacherib never captured Jerusalem, but archaeologists have discovered records of Sennacherib that say that he destroyed 48 cities in Judah. Although God rebuffed Sennacherib and Assyria, there was the looming pressure of Babylon that remained a major threat. In truth, by this point in history, Israel's glory days under David and Solomon were all gone. Her light was flickering. But if she would only obey God, he would relight Israel's torch once again. And so, verse 11, we, we seem, do, does it make sense there? It seems to be imagery drawing from the wilderness wanderings. I will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame, that is your body. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Perhaps that's a reference to Palestine and the judgment of God in context of the covenant. Perhaps it is a reference to the wilderness wanderings, but either place, there's this sun-scorched, dry existence. God says, I'll change all of that if you will seek me with all of your heart. What did God do for Israel in the desert? He satisfied her. He strengthened her frame, her body. How did he do that? He sent manna. He produced water out of the rock. Why did God do that? Deuteronomy 8.3 He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He led Israel to hunger so that she would know that she could feed on the word of the Lord. And he says, if you will come before me in fasting and in hunger so that you are expressing the desire to feed on nothing but my word and my truth and my presence, I will show up. I will answer. I will bless. I will pour water on those that are thirsty. I'll pour floods on the dry ground. 
Israel, if you will feed on my word and honor me, I will satisfy you. And so God concludes in a crescendo, verses 13 and 14, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. Now, we've got to stop on that for a few moments. If you keep, verse 13, notice at the beginning of verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath. How do feet break the Sabbath? The idea seems to be the trampling on holy ground, desecrating the Sabbath. Ritterboss writes, The Sabbath is sacred territory where one must not tread with feet that hasten to finish all sorts of daily activities. One must call the Sabbath a delight, not a burden that interferes with making a profit. So the picture is of these probably here in context wealthy Israelites, those who have labors that they're oppressing, and the picture here is them trampling with their feet, so busy to do their own business on the Sabbath day. Now God had called the Israelites uniquely to set this day aside, and it was set aside that they might rest in God and find in Him their joy and their delight. Where were they finding their pleasure? In themselves. You do what you want to do on the day of your fast. But if you will call the Sabbath a delight, in contrast to this hypocritical delighting, this eager delighting of verse 2 that wasn't really real, if you will call the Sabbath a delight, a luxurious, exquisite delight, the Hebrew word means, if you find resting in the presence of God not a drudgery but an exquisite delight, If you set aside, verse 13, idle words, that is empty conversation on the Sabbath instead of delighting in the Lord, if you will do that, then you will find your joy in the Lord. That was the whole point of the Sabbath from the very beginning, was that we would find our joy in God, that we would rest in His rest, that we would relate to Him on this unique day. Now, I don't think that day is precisely the same as the first day of the week in our setting and in our time, but the principle is the same. We humble ourselves to seek the Lord. And I think on that line, certainly the Lord's day, this first day of the week, is to be devoted and set aside to His worship and to His honor and to reflection upon Him and doing the things that indicate that we find our joy and our delight in Him. But here's the danger. And sometimes this meeting right here on Sunday mornings is the most dangerous time we have spiritually through the whole week. Because we gather here all neat and clean and sitting nicely and we come before the Word of God and we sing songs and we talk to one another. And so often it may be nothing more than just a ritual that is dead and takes us far away from God. But if we will delight in the Lord's day, if we will delight in the rest in God, if we will delight through our spiritual disciplines in who He is, then if it is a delight to you to be in the presence of God, His presence will be a delight to you. God will show Himself to be the joy of your heart. Notice verse 14. You will find your joy in the Lord. 
That word joy is again the Hebrew word delight that is found throughout this context. It's found in verse 2. It's found there in the middle of verse 13. If you call the Sabbath a delight, then verse 14, you will find your delight in the Lord. And I think that is the essence of a true of a life of true devotion. And I think that's the essence of life, period. Where are you going to find your delight? I sat across the table some time ago from a young man who had decided that his life was not worth living. There were bandages on his wrists to indicate that. And in a deep depression, he hung his head at the table. And I'm supposed to come and look at this individual and have something to say. Which I know I don't, in one sense, and I don't have to, but there we were, looking at each other. I was looking at his head, bowed down. What do you say to somebody like that, at that moment? We began to talk a little bit, but I came with this very theme. And I think this is what it comes down to for all of us. Very simply, it's where are you going to delight? In what are you going to delight? And we talked about the things that this young man had been delighting in. The path of life that he had been living. The places where he had been chasing happiness and joy and pleasure and satisfaction. Or if nothing else, somewhere to go through chemicals or relationships or something that will at least just deaden the pain. This is what it really boils down to for all of us. Where are you going to find your delight? Where are you going to find the satisfaction of your soul? That is what fasting and praying and reading and memorizing and meditating on the Bible is all about. It's about knowing God. It's about finding our joy and our satisfaction in Him, as the Hebrew word says, an exquisite delight. And is that not the very heart of every best relationship? If you have a friend, a person with whom you delight to be with, isn't that the heart of it? They, you want to be with them. It's a delight to be with them. Is that not what it should be and is in many of our lives with a a mate or with a romantic interest that you may have had somewhere in the past or have now? Isn't that the point? You delight to be with that person. We don't have a real problem seeing that. There's people we just like to be around and like to be with. But sometimes there's a disconnect between that very experience and God. I don't really like to be around him. I do so because I know I should, and so I pray, and so I read the word of God, and so I come to church, but really when it boils down to it, I don't have any pleasure in my relationship with him. The best relationships are a joy to us because relating to that person brings delight. Is that where you are with God? When we genuinely draw near to God, we find His presence a delight. 
Now, I've got to just throw in here. That doesn't mean that if you go to the Word of God and you read it and you go to prayer and you say this is a chore, that you should therefore quit. That's a really stupid solution to the problem of delight with God. That, is, that doesn't accomplish anything. These spiritual disciplines are intended to take us into that delight slowly, patiently, over time. But what will happen when we, defi- when we find our delight in God, verse 14, and then I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land? That's probably talking about walking on one of these high ridges in Palestine and looking down at the glorious prospect of the mountains and the valleys below. I will let you walk on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. To feast on the abundance of Palestine in the context of the Israelites. But here we have this sure, firm, absolute word from God. Now, if you wanted to, and I'd encourage you to, if you, have, if you want to take that opportunity even here, start at verse 8 and go down through verse 14 and look, at least in the NIV here, on the left columns. And what do you see? Verse 8, then, 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 then. Or the you will, which is another, we could just put then there. Then you will. Then you will. These are all results of drawing close to God. In the most flowery, imaginative words, he says to us, you come to me and I will be your delight if you seek me with all of your heart. But if you're going after it in the wrong way, I'm not going to be there, says God. This is a powerful chapter. And in it, the Holy Spirit calls us to consider the reality and authenticity of our devotion to the Lord. The answer to hypocrisy is not to quit fasting and reading and praying. It's to renew our hearts and to practice these disciplines of spiritual formation in humble, earnest pursuit of delight in God. Is God the source of your soul satisfaction? Is God the ultimate object of your heart's desire? Why do we do all of this? You should be here today because this service is a utensil in your hand by which to better taste the joy of God. You should pray and read the Word of God and memorize the scriptures, and meditate on them, and as God leads you, fast. As utensils to taste the banquet of delight that is in God. Verse 14, then you will find the delight of the Lord. The joy isn't so much in these rituals, these regimens, these activities, The joy is in the Lord. Is it true of us in any sense? As God put it to Israel, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. You fast, and on the day you fast, you please yourself. 
So I ask you, what is it that pleases you? And what is it that pleases you that does not please God? Maybe God would lead you to break from that pattern by entering upon a holy fast in which you humble yourself before the Lord so that He sends you on your way in righteousness and follows you with His glory. What an exciting prospect this passage leaves for us. Live righteously, and God will cover your tail with glory, verse 8. And He will be your delight, verse 14. God is not interested in acts of ritual devotion. He longs for a life of devotion that results from a heart which is deeply satisfied with and delights in the Lord. And the test of all of this, the test of our fasting and our service attendance and our reading and all of this, our praying, is does it change the way we love others? Does it change the way that we relate to people? If it does not, then our ritual is a farce. Fasting is intended to say to God, I love you, and I want you to see that I love you. I want you to be my soul's exquisite delight. I want to experience through this discipline what it means that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The end of all praying and Bible reading and church attendance and scripture memory, the end of all fasting is to learn to feed on Christ and to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then to show that devotion by living as Jesus lived. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we fall so very far short of your glory and of your honor in our own strength. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus that is given to us by faith in his finished work. And I pray, dear God, that we would take to heart now this word of challenge, perhaps of rebuke, certainly for all of us, a rebuke to me, a challenge to my own walk with you. God, we get so lost sometimes in the rut of routine. I pray, God, that we would realize that all of the religious devotion is not in vain as long as our heart is rightly centered. I pray, God, that you would strengthen us to see anew our responsibility to walk worthy of you and to love you with all of our heart. God, I sense deep within that this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our neighbors ourselves. This is the epitome of the law. This is that to which Christ has saved us. But Lord, I also sense in my own heart, and I know we all do, that there are so many idols 
that draw our attention away. God, may we be rebuked and may we pursue in earnest those spiritual disciplines in a right way that would draw us into a deeper and fuller and more meaningful relationship with you. Teach us, God, to pray. Teach us, Father, I pray, and nurture us in fasting and Bible reading and church attendance and corporate worship. Nurture us in these disciplines that we might find in you our joy. I pray this, and I pray, God, that we'd lay aside hypocrisies of external performance that is devoid of internal transformation. And Lord, if there is any who might be among us today that does not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, I ask that they would show that they would be seen today, that you would show that individual or those ones that you are the soul's ultimate satisfaction and that Christ came to forgive sin. We pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.